Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we have a truly unique episode broken into two parts for you. Part one features Dr. Leah Rowe discussing her work as a research psychologist whose focus area surrounds the idea of adaptive training. Part two follows her journey a year later with the idea becoming reality thanks to AFRL's Entrepreneurial Opportunities Program. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the double feature. In three, two, one. Dr. Rowe, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So you're a psychologist at AFRL, but not that type of psychologist that I'm thinking with like, you know, a couch and you're going to care about how I feel. Absolutely. Um, I, as an individual, care very much about how you feel, but that's not what I do professionally. Um, I'm a, a research psychologist here at AFRL. So there are many different flavors of research psychologists here at AFRL. I can talk you through what I do. Um, my background is in industrial organizational psychology. And um, what we do as IO psychologists is evaluate human behavior inside of organizations in the workplace. We address things like recruitment, selection, and quality of work life. But my primary focus is on training, skill development, and performance measurement, primarily focusing on readiness research and technology transition to enable our warfighters to be more ready um, for combat. The focus here is in the research and development realm is how to get our warfighters better, faster, and really to sustain it for longer. And how phenomenal is that? Like, that is such a cool idea that through your research, you can improve not only airmen's lives, but some of their performance. Uh, and, and that's something we really want to dive into in here a minute. But uh, before we kind of get into what you're doing in the modern day, we wanted to take a step back and see how you got here. And if I recall correctly, um, did you start working at the AFRL, at least get that connection back? Was it in college? I did. Once upon a time, um, we are certainly dating myself at this point. So I started as an intern uh, contractor in 2003 in Mesa, Arizona at the Warfighter Readiness Research Division. We were the only Air Force mission left at what was once Williams Air Force Base, which was at the time the Air Force's leading pilot training location. So it made sense that the Readiness Research Division, where we focused on training, was co-located at that base. While supporting the mission in Mesa, I was able to complete my master's in applied psychology while working as a contractor. As a matter of fact, my thesis effects on distributed mission operations on knowledge acquisition of fighter pilots was completed with F-16 pilots, not only accomplishing the requirements of my degree, but also validating and verifying new training capabilities for the Air Force. And with the work you did there at Mesa, how did you eventually transition to work at Wright-Patterson? The base realignment and closure of 2005 moved our division, the Warfighter Readiness Research Division, and its training research mission to Wright-Patterson in 2011. In 2011, I converted from a contractor. At that time, I had actually grown to be a principal research scientist managing a $10 million contract research portfolio to becoming a civil servant and a research psychologist. So I changed jobs and moved from Arizona to Ohio all at the same time. Uh, while here, though, in Ohio, I got to continue my academic studies while on the job, which is just a phenomenal opportunity. And I completed my PhD in industrial organizational psychology while in this position. And again, was able to use an operationally relevant problem set to accomplish my dissertation. 
And that was um, an evaluation of the effectiveness of problem-based learning in advanced training for F-16 pilots. So in my academic studies and in my beginning years here at the lab, I spent a lot of time with F-16 pilots. That's really cool. Did they did they give you your own like call sign or anything? <laughs> Funny that you should ask. Yes, they did. Uh, my call sign is Thumper. Nice. Yeah. Well, and I mean, how cool. Who, how many people really get to have a dissertation at the doctorate level, you know, where they're working directly with the F-16 pilots, you know, these, uh, you know, phenomenal war fighters. That's really cool. You know, I would have never guessed back when I first started interning at AFRL that I, I knew nothing about the military. Uh, my family didn't have a military background that I would interact with um, as many operational personnel as I've had the opportunity to. It's been truly rewarding. And that's so, I guess, important at AFRL. If you can really meet with the operational users, you can help solve their problems because you have that relationship. You see what they're, they're, the challenges they're, they're dealing with, the problem sets, the opportunities for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's really important to remember there, though, is that this operational community, they are busy. Um, their job is to be ready to go to war at any time to protect us, our nation. And therefore, we need to make sure that, you know, when we're inviting them in, that we have relevant work to show them. We have to make it worth their time because their time is certainly um, something that they don't have a lot of. And is that part of the training program that we're going to kind of go into with adaptive training is finding that time for rehabilitation? It's really developing. And for, for me, what's worked over decade is to um, listen to the operational community about where their training gaps are and use, you know, using scientifically validated methods to evaluate and determine what those gaps are in order to build something that's relevant to them. And once it's relevant to them, they'll give you the time of day. But, um, you know, they, they've got operational missions. So we need to make sure that what we're giving them is of value to them. And that's something we've touched on before in podcasts beforehand and in a conversation with you. And that, I think that's so important for the operational community is that you not only speak their language, but understand what they go through. A lot of people just assume, hey, we have this new tool or this new thing. You can integrate this into your schedule, right? But if you understand, like you said, how busy they are and uh, how stressful it could be, like that's it doesn't quite work like that. You have to work with them and understand how it works, which is such a huge part of the program. You do. And most importantly, you have to build trust with them because they don't know what a research psychologist is better than anybody else does, right? So when I show up at an operational unit and say that I'm a research psychologist, my number one goal is to show them, A, that I'm relevant and that I'm trustworthy. And once we have that, then we can start working on their challenges to get you know, either better technology or training methods in their hands. So I'm glad you mentioned that at the end there. So speaking of a lot of this, uh, either new technologies or uh, helping improve training, I think it's time to kind of fill in the gap we've had here, which is talking about what is adaptive training and how does that tie into your current position? Simply put, adaptive training allows for uh, training practitioners to target readiness. It's a method that aims to provide customized learning unique to areas where individuals need growth. Really, it allows for efficiency in training and training an individual to what they don't know rather than what they already know. So really not just checking boxes for the sake of checking boxes. And really it ties into my current position in that the portfolio that I've worked on really over my entire career here at AFRL and will continue to work on is really looking at that. How do we make our, our warfighters better, faster, and sustain that for longer? And one way to do that is to improve our training programs. And that's what we're working to do here. 
I'm just trying to get a a little bit of a visual when I think of adaptive training, because a lot of the training that I get to do is a, a government civilian that has more of a in business function role. Like I have a lot of computer-based training, a lot of slideshows, or, you know, there might be a fun little uh, video game incorporated into that where I can uh, figure out if if there's an operational security risk or if I've mismarked some piece of information, something like that. This isn't what we're talking about when we're talking about adaptive training. I mean, you're you guys are using simulators and more real life scenarios, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I referenced that in my dissertation that I really dove into problem based learning. And, um, you know, that's one method that you can use within the big umbrella of adaptive training. The important thing here is we know that not everybody forgets and remembers at the same rate. So the fact the training that you're talking about is calendar year based training that we have to do in order to be secure in the environments that we're working in and is completely understandable. But think about if you're an F-16 pilot, for instance, and I'm just making up numbers now, but say you have 20 different mission types that you have to be proficient in at any given point in time. It probably doesn't make sense to train to the mission that you just came back from being deployed doing, right? It most likely makes sense when you come home to be training to other things that you perhaps did not get to use while you were deployed. Adaptive training would allow you to basically test out of things that you already know how to do and really focus on developing the knowledge, skills, and experiences you need in order to do the things that you're not so good at. So is that something you're finding with, like, let's say a lot of modern models across the DoD that people are just trying to, there, there's training set in place that's worked in the past, but you're seeing that it's not attacking what people need to do in the moment? Or are you seeing this movement kind of as people are going, as a whole, you could say, toward adaptive training? Are you kind of riding this wave that's uh, kind of improving the airmen experience? So the objective of our research is to develop this, you know, training this new training paradigm for the, the Air Force and to demonstrate how it can work. Adaptive training will allow the Air Force to optimize readiness and more effectively use resources and ultimately be more agile. The problem that we're facing is a one-size-fits-all t- training paradigm, a paradigm that worked really well in the industrial age, you know, when we just had to stamp out ready people immediately for, you know, very, very specific jobs. However, this one-size-fits-all approach dictates that in order to be ready, there are a list of things that we must be able to do. So we need to be able to train to those things based on on a time requirement. At least that's how it's treated right now is, you know, annually or every so often you have to execute these specific tasks. But really, that's not the way we ought to be doing it. We really ought to be able to train people to, you know, what they don't know rather than what they do know. And really, I think the biggest logistical issue here with this is being able to track it. You know, there is a lot of tracking that's required to do that. And there is research here at the lab that some of my colleagues are doing, uh, looking at learning management systems to really allow for more effective training in an adaptive kind of environment. So you mentioned beforehand about this one-size-fits-all model and kind of shaking things up, and I kind of wanted to broaden the scope here. So something we discussed before this podcast was how um, you do a lot of exercises with uh, joint forces uh, and even uh, for, with coalition forces. So how do you work with uh, getting Air Force or connecting with these forces and making this new adaptive training assist at a larger scale? So this is probably top five rewarding parts of my career. And that's the ability to work with joint forces and coalition forces as well. So our operational personnel do not go to war alone. 
and therefore they ought to not train alone. I mean, it's really silly to think about pre-deployment training and not train with the kind of people that you're going to actually be in theater with. So, you know, if you think about it, and the first time that, you know, a pilot coordinating with a ground controller whose army is actually when you're dropping a bomb, that is terrible on-the-job training that could lead to, you know, disasters. So um, ultimately, redesigned a program that I lead that brings in about, I don't know, 1,200 to 2,000 operational personnel to um, our training research environment annually for the last five years. They come here because they get a valuable training experience, and we host them to harvest their human performance data, providing one of the most robust data lakes for operational training in existence. And ultimately, it's a win-win situation for both the operational personnel as well as for the laboratory and the science community. And what kind of data are you trying to uh, gather at these uh, kind of events, these larger joint force events? So um, reharvest human coordination, communication, and performance data inside of both simulated and sometimes live environments. This allows us to model novice through expert behavior, also providing us with the ability to design more effective training and transition things like relevant scenarios to the operational community. So you also get in, involved in training events like red flag, or maybe you're even referencing that now, which is like a huge, like, you know, two week uh, aerial combat, you know, training exercise. What takeaways do you have from something like that? Oh, wow. That was a great experience. Super unique too. So my team and I spent about two years, 2018 and 2019, not only observing, but collecting training and readiness data at red flag. With partnership from the leadership there at Nellis, we were able to demonstrate real-time training changes in the Air Force's premier air-to-air combat training exercise. Never did I imagine as a research psychologist, I would be briefing hundreds of exercise participants from the uh, Red Flag Auditorium stage. It was definitely a crazy experience. But what it did is it allowed us to demonstrate to the larger Air Force that training reform is possible. And can you kind of talk about with these operatives or a lot of the folks you got to speak to there, what is the impact you've had? Have they come back to you after and said like, hey, this adaptive training has really helped hone down my skill base or like the ideas you have have really changed our team dynamics? Like what have they said to you? So ultimately, I really believe that in order for for me to have been, I think, as successful as I've been in my career is really working with our operational personnel at the grassroots listening to what their challenges are and why those are their challenges, and then filling in the gaps all the way up to leadership. Ultimately, I think that our team has been able to listen to real-world challenges and address them in near real time, allowing us to really get training in the hands of operators at the speed of operations. That's fascinating. And, and kind of going along that train then, um, so are you, I know there's major events you guys covered, like these red flags, like the things you uh, you get a chance to actually watch at full scale. But outside of that, um, does your team usually go to other bases when requested, or would you see an issue saying, hey, this team may need help training, let's send someone out there and address it? We do travel a lot, as a matter of fact. Um, our red flag experience was based on a request. Additionally, you know, we'll go out to Air National Guard locations, AFSOC locations, ACC locations, um, as well as Army and, and Navy sites as well. Um, one of the things that is really great about getting out into the operational community is to actually be able to see what their life is like, 
So when they're here at the lab, I have, you know, a high fidelity, very realistic simulated environment, but it's controlled by us here at AFRL. So I don't really get to see the problems that they face every day. And when I see problems that they face, it's not only in their training and their operational performance, but it's also what are the demands on their job? What's taking away from the time that they could be spending becoming more operationally ready? And we've seen that throughout the years where it ebbs and flows, where, you know, different additional duties sometimes take over for training time. And that really allows us to figure out how to focus their, um, their actual operational training and the curriculum that, you know, rewrite, test, and evaluate to transition. That's really cool. It's really, it's cool at the fact that you guys get to actually travel, not only meet these people, but like you said, get to speak with them one-on-one so you fully understand not what the issues are, say, set over uh, through a call or a meeting, but no, you can see them real time and know how to make their lives better. So it shows that, I mean, the work you're doing is not only tangible, but that has to be so rewarding. It is really rewarding. And I've said this already, but seriously, you know, never did I think, you know, when I was an undergraduate studying psychology, that this is the kind of stuff I'd be doing. You're creating adaptive training for, you know, combat scenarios with these F-16 pilots, but are there applications perhaps to, you know, law enforcement or disaster relief? You know, we've talked to other folks in AFRL and, you know, some of our technology is applied to, you know, hurricane response or, you know, saving someone stranded on ice. You know, how can we help people train for those scenarios? So let's focus on, you know, in these disaster kind of situations, some of the key things that, you know, make it not go well. And that is often human coordination and communication. In adaptive training, um, you can create scenarios and training uh, vignettes that allow you to execute, say, just-in-time training. So let's just pretend that there's a hurricane that, that hits. And you have to pull together all kinds of different people from communities. You've got the the local search and rescue. You say, you know, maybe the National Guard, community volunteers, firefighters. These are people who don't work together often and certainly do not train together. So in an adaptive kind of training model, you can develop a just-in-time scenario using, um, you know, maybe even new technology, you know, um, augmented reality to really execute a scenario prior to going out and actually working on the problem. And while that's going to take some time away from getting out into the environment, there's already a bunch of checklists and training these people are doing before they get out the door. Let's optimize this training, fit it into the narrow time window they have so that they have a chance to figure out what their standard for communication, coordination, and execution is before they're actually out on the street trying to save lives. And the fact that you're actually able to do that, or at least speak on that level of how you can get people prepared for a disaster, which we can be as prepared as, you know, uh, forces can be at the location of, but sometimes you have to send in teams that need to give support. So that's a real world example, even outside the DOD of how, uh, what we can do to help. So again, one of those very rewarding stories to hear and incredible to hear that your team is able to accomplish things like this. And the fact that that, that with that in mind, uh, something we talked to you beforehand as well was about how amazing your team was. So with this in mind, with disaster relief, uh, going back to training, working at Red Flag, I mean, you guys are working very closely together throughout the year with a lot of travel and a lot of excitement. So could you kind of touch on what makes your team so spectacular, how they're able to keep doing this day after day? I have been really fortunate to work with and lead truly amazing humans. And I think it's just really important to put your people first, because once you put your people first, the mission gets done. So provide them the environment that they need to work, provide them the tools that they need to get it done, 
and provide them with the advocacy necessary for them to really, really get in the weeds and execute. So um, it's not only me that gets to interact with these warfighters, it's the team that supports me as well. Very skilled engineers, um, researchers, subject matter experts, um, and ultimately um, building that, that core team to take care of the mission really um, allows us as a lab to, to execute, I think, on a whole higher level. And then if you looked out to the future of what you think your team is going to be able to accomplish, what do you, what do you see a few years from now? So, um, you know, there is a lot going on right now, as a matter of fact. Um, we are in a major transition time frame for a lot of the technology that the team and I have developed. Um, whereas we are working to get this technology out of the lab and into the hands of the operational community as a training asset. So um, right now, that is our big push, actually, is technology um, and training transition. And that sounds like an exciting future for you guys then. So to hear that not only you're able to kind of sum things up, like uh, help the warfighter not only improve their readiness, improve their effectiveness, and improve performance, uh, but that you're trying to you know transition that into the right hands to keep that mission going and to keep people improving from that one size fits all to a very uh, nice, almost like modular model that can ensure every warfighter is ready to go out. Like you said, they have the readiness to assume whatever they need to, that operation they need to go out and accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. So something we'd love to ask our uh, interviewees here, so uh, before we kind of round out, is uh, do you have any specific pieces of technology or, or research that has really inspired you throughout your career? What I'd like to say is really what's inspired me is this interaction with the operational community and being able to see that we can, from a research laboratory, invoke change in um, what they do and how they do it and how they accomplish it. Um, we have data that indicates that personnel, after coming here to the laboratory, participating in our training research exercises, are more effective when they deploy. And that is something that um, I will forever cherish in my career. Well, Leah, welcome back. I mean, for our listeners, this is the same episode, but it's been a year since we talked to you. How have you been? I've been fantastic. Thanks. And thanks for having me back. Yeah. And one of the last questions we asked you a year ago when we interviewed you for the podcast is, where do you see yourself in, in a few years? And you said, working to get technology out of the lab and into hands of the operational community as a training asset. And what I find really unusual is that after explaining your long career with the Air Force, you actually took a sabbatical. What were your thoughts going into that decision and, and why did you take it? Well, so starting a sabbatical, the first thing I thought was, what do I do with all this time? I've never had that kind of time in my life. And at first, it was really, really uncomfortable, you know, because of the, the hustle and bustle of the daily life at AFRL and as a program manager. But while on sabbatical, my only job was to learn how to be an entrepreneur and explore ways that I could support the Air Force's technology transfer and uh, transition mission. It afforded me a great opportunity to take a step back and really analyze the valley of death. The valley of death is where we often say our technology lands somewhere between the laboratory and the warfighter. Interesting. It's cool to think that you had that time to explore that space and, of course, kind of explore where you were going to be going. So uh, when it came to actively like managing said time or kind of setting up a schedule, did that change or did you pick up any lessons or tricks along the way that really helped you now with that year to find all that information? 
So really like the biggest thing that I learned is that it's so hard to step away from work that you love. You know, you build this relationship, this professional relationship with your work and stepping away from it is really, really hard. However, I also learned that perspective is everything. When you're in the weeds of the work, it's easy to think that you have the broader view in sight. But in reality, when you step away and have some time to reflect, a whole new perspective reveals itself. You're really afforded the opportunity to really assess your strengths and weaknesses, which is hard. It's um, almost harder to you know, assess your strengths than it is your weaknesses. Not a lot of people have the opportunity to pause for a year in the middle of their career and really reflect on what's going on. I'm so grateful that I had this opportunity mid-career to look at it. This is something a lot of people are able to do at retirement time. And I still have a good part of my career left. So really learning, you know, what I was able to learn during the sabbatical was fantastic. And then to, you know, clarify for our listeners who probably understand the idea of sabbatical, but this, this sabbatical was planned. It, it was part of AFRL's Entrepreneur Opportunity Program, um, EOP is for short. Can you explain why the Air Force has um, created this program and, and, and space for people to step back from um, the normal day-to-day -day work? The Entrepreneur Opportunity Program, or EOP, supports AFRL's technology transformation by providing entrepreneurialism as a viable mechanism for promising AFRL technologies and getting them out into the commercial market that benefit national security and economic prosperity. So that is um, the reason I was on sabbatical. The phase one of this effort allows the entrepreneurs, after an approval process, to take a year to really learn how to be entrepreneurs. It allows AFRL scientists and engineers to explore transferring and transitioning technology they developed while at AFRL to either their own business or an existing business. After thoroughly researching having my own business and the mentorship that I received from amazing leaders while on sabbatical, to include some AFRL leaders and external business people as well, I chose to join an existing technology-based business and expand their business. Therefore, I've joined a company and am the director of a new division that I get to stand up called the Training and Readiness Division. And I'm curious too, I know some of our viewers may be thinking with sabbatical and this training, how it's approached. So you mentioned you had some mentorship, uh, you got to meet some really cool people and you got to work alongside uh, industry. So is this something that you actually had to build yourself or were some of these tools in place and you're like, oh, I'm going to go to this talk or um, access this course or what did that training look like? So the local entrepreneur center, as well as uh, the small business office there at AFRL, they have tools to help you throughout. Um, and again, just any of the senior leaders inside of the lab, um, recently retired senior leaders, I really, really leaned on them. They are so well connected in the community. Additionally, organizations like Dayton Development Coalition, I we really live in an environment, a community of people who are just wanting to see uh, success come out of Wright-Patterson. And ultimately, past EOP candidates who now have their own businesses, I think I might be the first one to actually join an existing business, have been just fantastic. I mean, um, not only were they you know, board members on my committee, but they also mentored me through what was um, the most difficult thing that they did while standing up their business. And ultimately, I've got to say, because I wanted to be so engaged in the technology and really care for the technology as it moved out of the laboratory, that's why I chose to join an existing business, because then I wouldn't have to worry about the issues of things like 
payroll in my own company and, you know, et cetera. I'm glad you talked about that too, because it's such an interesting aspect of this, that you got to join this business and be part of this process to keep that strong connection with AFRL and bring that new expertise you have to them. Uh, I don't know if many folks would have realized that was part of the sabbatical journey was that you could say, hey, I can go out to these people in the industry and make sure that uh, this tech transfer is not only possible, but very, very uh, doable. Uh, you, I mean, you're in the weeds of it, if you will. Absolutely. So with that idea in mind, then, um, this is a very much more of an open approach, this idea of tech transfer. So how is the, the method you're doing here, this almost going out to industry, doing this research, really going to help these researchers and people working in the tech industry kind of get this technology out more swiftly or these tech transfers, I should say? So once in phase two of the EOP, the entrepreneur, me in this situation, is able to collaborate directly with AFRL to work towards the transition and transfer uh, mission of the laboratory. Therefore, getting technology to the market faster. This concept of transition through partnership with industry isn't new and actually came to be in 1986 with the United States Federal Technology Transfer Act, which I think a lot of us just don't realize, which focused on technology transfer from federal government laboratories to commercial sector through cooperative research and development agreements, or what we call CRADAs inside of the laboratory. The EOP really affords for the scientist or engineer who created the technology to transition with the technology. This is a phenomenal personnel development tool, and it helps ensure the technology is well cared for outside of the laboratory environment. I, I didn't really realize, Leah, the, the background of, of, of this act uh, supporting this, but it makes so much sense. You talked earlier about the valley of death where there's something created that's awesome, but maybe it doesn't transition to ultimately make a, an immediate impact. So who better in some cases would be that scientist or engineer to, they may be the, the best person in the world to really make sure that it, it sees life and impact um, in, in the operational community. So that, that's really cool. And you can see why um, in a weird way, you know, like what company is just going to give someone a, a year to think and, and, and develop and, and not have a direct deliverables, but it really sets you up to um, fulfill our mission of, you know, supporting the warfighter. So, for instance, when General Pringle first came on board, I was just entering this program, right? Mm -hmm. And I know her from back when she was a major. Um, she was stationed um, at the lab I worked at in Arizona. And so briefing her on this, she, she says, but why would you want to leave AFRL? You know, why, why would you want to do this? And, you know, the truth of the matter is I don't necessarily want to leave AFRL, but I, I reached my career growth height for as a training researcher. And at that point, you know, I, I, I'm really more of a practitioner and I understand that that's not the mission of the laboratory. And while I want to give back to the laboratory, right, I want to give access to everything retransition back to the lab and make sure the lab has access to that data as an enterprise asset. I am not going to check the boxes to become an SES or an ST or move around directorates or move around the world. Like I am, a, I have a PhD in psychology focused on training with the mission of making people better faster. That's what I want to do. And that's what I'm passionate about. And thus, you know, having me outside the laboratory to advocate for those inside and to give data back is also valuable. That's a great explanation of of why why you made this leap. It wasn't because you didn't love AFRL. It's because you loved it so much. And so the mission that this is the best way that you can continue serving that with 
your unique uh, skill set being the world's expert in something. So, you know, with all of this in mind, the EOP program has two major phases. Um, could you walk um, our listeners through uh, what that experience was like? Yes. Yeah, so both phases require an application and the approval of a board that consists of internal and external business experts. By internal, I mean people inside of AFRL and external people who are experts in the technology area or in business uh, in the outside community. The small business office actually does a great job at recruiting the panel members for this process. Once you're approved for the first phase, you have up to 12 months to take a sabbatical. You can also skip the first phase if you're ready to go right into phase two. I'm not sure that anybody has done that. During the sabbatical, it's expected that you will explore the feasibility of the business plan that you presented during the phase one proposal portion of the process. At the end of phase one, you can then submit a more detailed business plan and application for phase two of the EOP. With board approval, you can, and directorate approval, you enter into phase two. During this phase, you voluntarily separate from AFRL to pursue expanding, for me, to pursue expanding an existing business. Uh, part of phase two is a memorandum of agreement between AFRL and the entrepreneur that allows the entrepreneur to come back to the laboratory within five years, therefore minimizing the risk of this exciting but scary jump to industry. So once you make that jump to industry, um, as a researcher, you know, you're taking your tech and your idea outside the fence. What kind of relationship do you maintain with AFRL besides that, hey, you can come back in five years? So this really depends on the entrepreneur and their technical directorate. This is a question definitely where one size doesn't fit all. And as I've talked to um, all of the other previous candidates and successful candidates of EOP, so those who've separated from AFRL, they all have a little bit of a different relationship. For instance, I'm working with my previous technical directorate to establish a long-term relationship through a CRADA, where we can be sure that the valuable data generated in the technology that I am working to transition can be available to AFRL. I spent 17 years of my career supporting AFRL and believe in its mission. It is critical to me as an individual that I continue to give back, not just to my previous technical directorate, but to the larger AFRL enterprise. Funny enough, I just learned that the company I chose to join actually was founded by two AFRL Rome engineers in 1968 with a very similar approach to the EOP. Obviously, they were way ahead of their time. Okay, that's really cool because, you know, so our, our Rome engineers for our listeners, are there in New York and you're in the Wright-Patterson area, which is in Dayton, Ohio. So who who would have thought that you're, the, the company you end up partnering here would have that long history, that, that connection? But you know, AFRL and our predecessor labs, we're just, we're just everywhere. <laughs> we are, we're actually worldwide. And I think something that you touched on, we've been kind of going back and forth over is this idea of like our technology or these great opportunities that researchers can actually transfer. So we want to talk more about yours and something we discussed earlier in the, uh, the other podcast that we had before this, the one we're kind of bringing together. And that's the idea of adaptive training, something that you're not only passionate about, but you are, I mean, the expert in your field. So our question is, to make this more accessible to first responders, military personnel, um, on-site real-time training, there's a lot of elements that go into this. So how are you now making that happen with the tools presented to you by this program? So my team and I are working to stand up what will be initially a regional training center in downtown Dayton, right in the um, new tech corridor uh, area that's being developed. 
where we will use revolutionary training concepts and techniques developed at AFRL to support rapid readiness of those who have signed up to protect us, military and civil organizations. Overall, the local community has just been tremendous in supporting us in developing relationships across both civilian and DOD organizations. That's fantastic. So it's great you can not only find a home for this, um, but actually have the right tools to make this happen for the space, the personnel, and like you said, the processes. But I am curious, with everything presented here, especially with the EOP program, how did this approach to tech transfer help find the right home for this unique idea of adaptive training? So once I decided to join an existing business, which by the way, happened at the very end of my sabbatical in the last quarter, I determined that it was really critical that I join a business or a company that has experience transitioning AFRL technology. Because this, this is something we don't do a lot of, and I really needed somebody who had experience with it. And I had no experience from outside the fence doing this. So the company I joined has arguably one of the best non-traditional transitions with AFRL, and that is the transition of the Android Tactical Assault Kit, or ATAC, which is used by warfighters globally and civilian first responders as well. Beyond having worked technology transfer and transition with AFRL successfully, I really liked how the company continues to collaborate with AFRL on ATAC technology. It provided evidence that the company is interested in continuing to contribute to the AFRL enterprise. And I just have to jump in here really quick and make a connection for our listeners. We've we've talked about AFRL Inspire before, which is like our series of TED Talks. Leah, there's a TED Talk, an AFRL Inspire out there with you. It's not actually a TED Talk, it's AFRL Inspire talk, but on our YouTube channel. But there's also um, two other gentlemen did a ATAC talk. So if our listeners are really interested in that amazing technology, and I mean, it's life-saving technology, they need to check it out. Um, so I'll put that little plug in there. And then back to you, Ken, for the hard-hitting questions. No, of course. That's a great plug in people. You should check it out. It's very informative and very cool. And also, uh, it's great to hear, Dr. Rowe, that you had a connection that was already, like you said, the road had been paved in a way. So this business was like more AFRL goodness, bring it on in. So I'm glad that you had these doors open to you. But something we want to make sure we have for our viewers or listeners, I should say. Um, so we've spoken about it earlier in this podcast about adaptive training, uh, but some people may conflate training and learning together. Is there a difference? And how are you using both of these ideas in this new business venture? We're using the science of learning to make sure that training is sound. So often when we hear the word training, we think of a boring computer-based activity that we have to do so that we aren't on the bad kid list. We're seeking to make training relevant, responsive, and revolutionary to ensure our nation's most critical personnel are ready when they need to be. We will do this by creating multidisciplinary teams to support our efforts. That does uh, bring me a more of a reminiscent look back to, I don't know if many of you folks remember uh, Mavis Beacon, the old typing program. <laughs> so I do remember doing that, uh, making sure I wasn't on the bad list. I had to get my typing in, which, hey, being on social media, very important. But that's, I mean, great that we had that distinction. And something I'm interested in too is seeing if you can help build our listeners kind of a visual. So I know we, again, have talked about this idea of uh, training, but given this new location you have and um, what resources you have access to, what will this look like going ahead, especially for operators who may need this adaptive training for their regiments? So the readiness component of our venture will focus on just-in-time training for the most relevant and critical missions. We'll provide the ability to practice what you're going to do while you're on your way to do it. For example, let's say there's a natural disaster in Florida, perhaps a hurricane. 
and a guardsman from a neighboring state is inbound to support the rapid evacuation of the local citizens. We know from several mishaps of previous situations like these that the mishap almost always is caused by poor communication coordination amongst the first responders supporting the mission. Now imagine if you are a first responder inbound to Florida and on your phone, you could use an app in augmented reality to establish and practice communication standards with the local first responders that are supporting the mission on the ground. This will not only make the first responders more effective and efficient at their jobs, but will also save lives. This can be applied to wartime situations too. Practice it before you do it. Fascinating. So if I'm visualizing this right, one of the ways this could be used is, as you mentioned, there's something happening real time. And if it's something that these first responders either need to uh, reiterate or even try to adapt to, they could be on the way. And like you said, using augmented reality or their tools, be like, okay, I'm doing some like quick learning, some quick training. I'm out the truck, ready to go. Absolutely. Just think about it. So our police force, our local police force, they have their own communication standards. Our military has its own communication standards. Within our military, there are several different communication standards. Saying the wrong thing at the wrong time could actually cost somebody a life. Therefore, understanding where you're going to have that miscommunication before you're actually in an urgent fight or flight situation will allow you to save more lives. I mean, that really put it there. I mean, that makes perfect sense why this is so critical. And with these uh, technologies or training methods in place, would you have members of your team here helping set this up or helping people walk through this? Or is this more down the road, let's say in a few years, you want to give people the infrastructure than do this themselves? We want to teach them how to fish. Uh, we want our first responder community to understand how to help themselves. And we really want to train the community that the training doesn't have to be boring, checkbox based because you got to do it. Now, I'm not going to say that we'll ever get away from something like cyber awareness training, um, that that is necessary to be on our networks and to make sure we're safe. But when we're talking about readiness of humans, we need to make training uh, real to them. We need to, people need to have a reaction to training that it's good training so that they believe in it. Yeah, I mean, trust me, I'm believing this hearing it right now. So that, that makes perfect sense. So uh, you kind of hit it right there in the head, too, of how this could change. But how does your team, or I should say, what are your team's goals here down the road? Like, let's say five, six years. How do you want this to evolve, like you mentioned, to make people have this easily accessible training and be ready for uh, almost anything? I would love to see our nation's warfighters and civilian first responder community have access to real-time readiness and training to gain the readiness that they require to come home safely to their families and save the lives of people like you and I. I want there to be no gap in their ability to become ready for the thing that they put their lives on the line for. And hopefully maybe our podcast will still be around in five years and we can we can check in, Ken, but... Uh going to need some more likes and subscribes probably. But anyway, tying all this together, Leah, um, you know, what advice do you have for folks that might be on the fence for making that leap? I mean, it could be to the EOP program for some of our listeners that work in the lab, but that sabbatical, that career change, that, you know, stay at, at, at the at the expert level in your field rather than, you know, going to that, you know, broader leadership level. I mean, these, these are decisions that we all have to make in our, in our, our lives, whether we're practitioners or just, you know, pure leadership or something like that. What advice do you have? To never, never, never give up. Endurance is the name of the game. Do good things and good things will happen. So now some practical advice. 
I'll, I'll go with my top three. Uh, first, be ready to step away from the work. While on sabbatical, you no longer are part of the day-to-day -day mission and you, your hands are tied. No more taking calls from you know your team, no more directing, no more being involved in that science. So you have to be ready to do that. And you have to be confident that you can hand that off to somebody who's able to do that in your place. Second, keep your leadership apprised of your plans and ensure their support. Leadership support is absolutely key in this. Finally, I think it's really critical for all the scientists and engineers out there to know that you need to find a mentor. If you don't have a senior mentor, find one. Anybody inside of AFRL who is a senior member would be happy to mentor you. So don't be afraid to ask. I have been so fortunate to have amazing mentors who've walked with me through my entire career, all the way through making the decision to jump to this EOP and ultimately separate from AFRL. And we're talking about all people who have a vested interest in AFRL being successful. And we all agreed that at this point in my career, the way that I could be most useful to AFRL is from the outside to advocate for them. Um, and along those lines of mentorship, you need to ask them for critical feedback and take that to heart and learn how to grow and be the best version of yourself within the position that you're in. I mean, we really couldn't put it better ourselves. I mean, that is very inspirational and a great message for folks who are not only curious about the program, but like you mentioned, looking to only help with their career growth too with mentorship. So we greatly appreciate all the insights you've given us on really uh, these two podcasts in one. Now, this is almost a supercut here to really tell people about the amazing world of adaptive training and what the actual EOP program can do for you. So thank you, Dr. Rowe, for joining us. It has been a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you. I was so glad to be here. Hope to talk to you guys in a couple years. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.